Father God, we come to you in the name of the risen King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that this morning as we come to worship, we don't worship the memory of someone who did something great. We worship you, Lord Jesus, ruling and reigning, resurrected, sitting at the right hand of the Father, King of King, Lord of Lords. There have been many great men in history and they've all stayed dead. But there is only one Lord and Savior, and that is you, Jesus. So incline our hearts this morning to you, Christ. Remove the noise, remove the distractions, the fears, the doubts, the anxieties. Grab hold of our hearts by you, Holy Spirit, that we would see you, Christ, as glorious. Open our eyes to see your beauty and your power. Unite our hearts to truly cherish value, to treasure your name, and to fear you rightly. And as we hear of how you have risen from the dead victorious, may our hearts be overwhelmingly satisfied with the love that is proclaimed by your resurrection. May you lead us into truth, Lord, because there's perhaps no greater truth than Jesus is alive. May the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight this morning, God. Holy Spirit, we ask here and now that you would do that sanctifying work in those of us who are followers of Christ and that you would do that resurrecting, saving work in the hearts of anyone here this morning who does not know you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, our message is titled, Why the Resurrection Matters. So we're going to be looking at a variety of different passages from different angles But I want to start with a quote by Dr. John MacArthur, who said, quote, The truth of the resurrection gives life to every other area of gospel truth. The resurrection is the pivot on which all Christianity turns and without which none of the other truths would much matter. Without the resurrection, Christianity would be so much wishful thinking taking its place alongside all other human philosophy and religious speculation, end quote. That's the heart of what I'm hoping God will show us in his word this morning. If we were going to succinctly, concisely wrap that up, we would simply say the the resurrection matters because without it, there is no Christianity. There is no salvation. And so we're going to have a variety of points. None of these are exhaustive, but I'm hoping to give us at least a understanding and an overview of why the resurrection matters. The list of why it matters is endless. And I want us to begin our first point this, this morning with the resurrection matters because it's true. So I want to offer a variety of just evidences from the scriptures themselves showcasing to us why it's true, how we know it's true. And the first reason we know it's true seems kind of redundant, but we know the resurrection is true because the tomb was empty. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15. Now, while they were on their way, behold, some of the guard 
came into the city and reported to the chief priest of all that had happened. And when they had assembled to the elders, they took counsel together and they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this is heard before the governor, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. That morning came, the stone was rolled away, the seal was broken, the cords were torn apart, and these Roman guards, whose entire life centered around militant attention to detail, find the body's not there. They know this is a problem, they go, they report it, And they said, well, we have to make a cover-up because if this word gets out, people will know all he proclaimed is true. The tomb was empty. We'll talk more later about this, but it's interesting. The tomb was empty has never been something that even right from the very beginning was debated. The Jews didn't say, no, he didn't really rise. They tried to cover it up. But they didn't produce a body. That would have been very easy. An empty tomb guarded by Roman soldiers, and you're telling me ragtag fishermen overpowered them? The tomb was empty. Has never in the history during this biblical time was never debated or said to not be true. Think of how easy Christianity has stopped, the spread of the message of Christ has stopped, if simply they said, no, the body's right here. With that empty tomb, we also recognize, had he not really risen, had he really been dead and not in the bodies there, there would have been some kind of veneration of the tomb. It would have been a place of worship. But it's not. Why? Because there's nothing there to worship. Christ is risen. So the most compelling evidence for the resurrection being true biblically is that the tomb was empty. Secondly, not only was the tomb empty, one of the second evidences is that the first people, the first disciples to discover the empty tomb was women. Now, why is that uh, an issue? Because during that time in that culture, the Jewish tradition, the testimony, the, the credible testimony and eyewitness of a woman would not be held up in court. It wasn't valued the same. So if you're making up a fictitious account, if you're making this thing up and you're wanting people to buy in, why would you make up that women whose testimony would not have held up in court were the first there? You're actually just putting a, a bigger stumbling block to people buying in to your sham. Listen to Luke 24. Verses 1 through 10, as it records this. Now, on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which, spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened that while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling cloth. And when the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, 
but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words, and when they had returned to the tomb, they reported all these to the eleven and to all the rest. Now Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the rest of the women with them were there. They were telling these things to the apostles. It's very compelling that women were the first ones there because nobody would have made it up that way. Secondly, a third, a third evidence, which perhaps we don't think much about, is found in John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, we have that account of the empty tomb. Look at verses 3 through 9 with me. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb, and the tomb were running together. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw that the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but folded up in the place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and saw and believed. If you're trying to steal a body after overpowering Roman guards, why do you take the time to fold the linen? You wouldn't. I was talking with my friend last night about this text. We comically said maybe... Mary really trained Jesus right to fold his laundry. Because <laughs> he took time to fold the cloth. It's a nice little touch. Not here anymore. Thanks. That's not something you would do if you're stealing a body, trying to hurry out in the, and not get caught. Then you have the evidences of the multiple appearances of the resurrected Christ. And we can't read all the passages, so I'm just going to cite them. Mary Magdalene sees the risen Jesus in John 20, verses 11 through 18. The men on the road to Emmaus account, uh, encounter the risen Christ. Luke 24, 13 through 35, and that has one of those beautiful passages where Jesus is said to show them how all the scriptures point to him. The disciples meet Jesus post-resurrection, without Thomas. Then they tell Thomas, Thomas is like, yeah, I'm not buying it. Jesus shows up again to the disciples, this time with Thomas. That's John 20, verses 24 through 29. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, we're told that the resurrected Jesus appeared to 500 people. For those who cry hallucination, there is no such thing as mass hallucinations. There are only... Typical individual hallucinations. 500 people are not going to hallucinate together and cite this. Then there is the fact that the New Testament in its entirety, the focus of the preaching is not only the gospel, but specifically we see the resurrection of Christ being a center point of the preaching 
of the apostles in the early church. The resurrection is mentioned in every New Testament book except Philemon, James, 2 Peter, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude. And yet even those letters operate from a presupposition that Jesus is risen. Theologian N.T. Wright said, quote, Christianity is inexplicable apart from the assumption that virtually all early Christians did indeed believe that Jesus of Nazareth had been raised bodily from the dead. Even historians that were not Christians like Tacitus record in their historical accounts the resurrection of Christ. Non-believing historians during that time recorded as much. Josephus does as well. It wasn't a point of debate. It was recorded as what took place. Final evidence I'll put forward to show that it's true is one that I found extremely compelling when I was wrestling against God's saving grace. And it's how the 12 disciples died. You've seen some extreme religions today. Followers may die for the cause. But none of those who died today for the cause have actual firsthand accounts of what happened. They're dying by faith. The 12 disciples were eyewitnesses. They knew definitively whether or not Jesus was truly risen from the dead. So let me just recount how some of these men died. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome for his faith. Andrew was crucified in Greece. Thomas was pierced by soldiers, most likely in India. Philip was put to death in either North Africa or Asia Minor. Matthew, tradition says, was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Bartholomew was martyred by being flayed and beheaded by the Armenian king. James was stoned and clubbed to death. Simon was killed because he refused to worship the sun god in Persia. Matthias was put to death by burning in Syria. The apostle Paul was beheaded in Rome. And John was exiled in his old age to the island of Patmos. So let me ask you. Maybe... Maybe we'll grant that one man really just wanting to leave a legacy, though it be a lie, would die for something he knows not true. But 12 men under extreme torture, duress like this, knowing for sure whether or not the tomb was empty, are going to die for something that is an outright lie and they have knowledge of it? Not happening. So that's our first point. Why does the resurrection matter? Because it's true. For someone to say that resurrection didn't happen is not simply to say, I'm not going to believe the Bible. But they would even have to say, I'm going to deny what is historically recorded. I'm going to suspend common sense. I'm going to close my eyes and bury my head in the sand of unbelief. The resurrection matters because it's true. 
Secondly, our second point, the resurrection matters because it shows Jesus to be the Son of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Who was designated as the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's Romans 1.4. Now, I want to clear up some, do a little bit of interpretation here for us. When it says designated to be the Son of God in power, designated doesn't mean that at that moment he became the Son of God. Or that he wasn't somehow the Son of God prior to the resurrection. He's always been the Son of God. What that's speaking more is that prior to his resurrection, he was the Son of God in his meekness, in his lowliness, in his humility. But upon resurrecting, he is now the Son of God empowered, declared. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he, be, yet he lives because of the power of God. And so to be designated the Son of God in power is both a declaration of who he truly is, but it's also, you can think of it as the, as the coronation event, where he is given the crown and he sits now at the right hand of the Father. And notice here in Romans 1.4, that it wasn't that Jesus declared himself to be the Son of God in power. Rather, it is God the Father making this proclamation over his Son. It was confirming both his deity and his position, that he truly is the beloved Son of God who now sits at the right hand, who is resurrected, overcoming sin and death, and reigns powerfully and victoriously. Son of God means that he had the same nature as God. Doesn't mean he became the Son of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 Speaking of Jesus, it says, who is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power, who having accomplished cleansing for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is God, and Jesus is fully man. Jesus is the son of God. He is the exact representation of of God. And by in power, it's speaking of the fact that from all eternity, he's been the son, but now he is able to save all who come to him by faith as king over all. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the Son of God in power. 
He's the lion of Judah, not simply the pussycat of Israel. He roars. It isn't that Aslan is coming, it's that Aslan is reigning. Listen to Psalm 2, verse 7, which seems to be echoing this very truth. Psalm 2 being a royal psalm speaking of the Messiah. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Then you jump down to verses 10. So now, O king, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in his way. Kiss the son, why? It's the coronation is if you kiss the signet ring of a king. Because Christ is the Son of God in power, and he was raised, it says in Romans 1-4, by the Spirit of holiness, meaning that it was the Holy Spirit who raised up and gave life to the physical body of Christ. Christ has a real body now. He was resurrected in a glorified body that you can see, that you can touch. He has it right now, and the Spirit of God resurrected that physical body and glorified that physical body. And the fact that he is God and man is shown here. He has two natures in one person. He is fully God and fully man. And I just love the way verse 4 ends as a great reminder. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul could have said the Lord and he would have been correct. But Paul personalizes it. He's not only the king of kings, the master overall. He's my king. He's my master. He's my ruler. He's my savior. So that point there, just to recap, is the resurrection matters because it shows Jesus to be the son of God. Our third point, the resurrection matters because it shows that Jesus has defeated death. And you notice all these points that I'm citing are coming from the book of Romans. He's defeated death. Go to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. I'm sorry, verses 8 and 9. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is a master over him. Interesting, it says death no longer. Because there was a point when Jesus submitted himself to the work of redemption, submitted himself to the law. And so there was a sense in which he submitted himself to the rule of death being our substitute. Death is powerful, and death has reigned since Adam and Eve ate from the tree and disobeyed the Lord. I often say that death is the most unnatural, natural thing in this world. Think about it. I don't know if any of you have, those of you who have had to bury a loved one, something about it feels wrong. It's not supposed to be this way. Because God's original design was not for man to die. So death is that constant reminder 
that man has disobeyed God and is living outside what he was created originally to be. And so Christ enters into time, lives a perfect life, dies a substitutionary death, rises from the dead, and it can be said, therefore, that Jesus has put death to death. Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. And the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Saying he has the keys of death, Jesus is saying, I have the power over, I have the authority over death. I hate to bring up the tragedy that happened just a while ago at that school in Tennessee. But if you were to hear some of the reports that came out of it, this was the promise, this was the hope that those parents especially are resting in this Easter morning. That by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, their children, though bodily dead, will be raised to newness of life with Christ. And that they are with him today in paradise. That is. Jesus has defeated death. His resurrection was not like the resurrection of Lazarus. Lazarus was resurrected to die once more. Jesus was resurrected to never die again, as we are told here in Revelation 1.18. And because Jesus' death was for the punishment of sin, his resurrection shows that he fully paid the price. Romans chapter, oh, sorry, Psalm 16.10 shows that the resurrection of Christ also is the fulfillment of prophecy. Psalm 16, verse 10, for you will not forsake my soul to Sheol. You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. Because his body did not see the corruption of death. It was resurrected gloriously. Which brings us to an amazing promise from the, found in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you highlight your Bible, highlight this verse, underline it, star it, whatever you do. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. The last enemy to be abolished is death. Defeated. Done. Death no longer is an enemy. Death now is kind of like your chauffeur who brings you into glory, into the presence of God. I'm not saying that the prospect of death doesn't bring fear. The process of dying, of course. If you were to ask my wife, I have very weird phobias about that, about how I'm going to die. I will never go beyond ankle deep in the ocean for that reason. But the reality is we're all going to die, but we need not fear death because death has been defeated. We will live forever with Christ. There will be a day where he will crack the sky, returning glory. Loved ones who have died in the Lord will be resurrected into newness of life with glorious bodies will be ushered into eternity, into that, into the new heavens and the new earth. I love the scene in the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia where you run and never grow tired. 
It is such a glory that awaits us in that resurrected life that I, I, perhaps we don't, aren't told much about it because human language can't fully grasp it. But the most glorious thing about the fact that he has defeated death is that in defeating death by faith with him, we will be with him forever. I really don't care if I live in a studio apartment with Christ. I was with Christ. So to me, it's not so much about the location as much as the company. I get to be with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I get to look into the eyes of the one who defeated death and see power, life, beauty, glory, goodness, holiness, righteousness, loving kindness, patience in his eyes for all eternity. This is why our Protestant churches don't have Christ on the cross. Because he's not there anymore. I don't need to see him on the cross. He's, he's seated in the heavens. So the resurrection matters because it shows Jesus has defeated death. Point number four, the resurrection matters because it is actually central to our faith. Now back to Romans we go. Romans chapter 10. And I was really struck by this being central to our faith and how Paul records it in Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I was really caught by this because so often our, our evangelism is something like this. Jesus died for your sins. Do you believe that? He, took, he took, paid your price. He paid, paid it in full. He died for you. That's true. But what Paul's saying here is, he rose for you. He didn't simply die. Paul's focusing on belief in the resurrection. It's not that Paul doesn't make much of the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. You can't read Paul's letters and not get that. But here in Romans 10, especially as it's talking about heralding the good news, what his focus is that he was raised from the dead. Because there were many during that time who said they were the Messiah, who died, and they stayed dead. They simply became worm food. To die for someone, so if you're the Messiah and you die, but you don't rise from the dead, you profit nothing. If Jesus simply had died a substitutionary death and had not risen, you still are dead in your sins. And so the evidence that his perfect life and substitutionary death was efficacious, that it accomplished what he said it was accomplished, is the fact that on the third day, he was risen bodily. That he fully completed the work that the Father had given him. That the debt was fully paid. That death was defeated. Church, we're not simply called to believe in a dead substitute. We're called to believe in a risen and living Savior. And the greater confidence you and I can have and grow in the resurrection of Christ, the greater confidence you have in your salvation. The more you really fix your heart on the fact that, wow, he overcame death. He fully paid the price for sin and was risen in power, the more we really meditate on that and understand that, the more confidence we have to go into this world with no fear. Because there's nothing this life can throw at you then. 
You and I need to believe in the very core of our being that Christ was risen from the dead. And over the years, I have found that lots of people really appreciate the example Jesus gave. Lots of people are really humbled by the sacrifice he made, but there are lots of people who don't actually believe that he rose bodily. There are professing Christians who, well, maybe he rose spiritually. No, he had a physical body upon his resurrection. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Our fifth point, and one that perhaps we haven't thought much of, is that the resurrection matters because the resurrection is central to our justification. Now, a little recap on justification here. What is justification? The word justification is a legal term. It it has courtroom imagery. To be justified means that you have been declared righteous in the sight of God by faith in what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Notice it's not saying that you are righteous, but that you've been declared so. So justification is a changing of what God says about you, not about a change that's happened within you. Because our entire life is this process of beginning to grow in our righteousness. So listen to Romans chapter 4, verse 25. He who was delivered over on account of our transgressions and was raised on account of our justification. Then you have Romans 5, 1, the next verse. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. One more, Galatians 2.16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man cannot be justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Even we... Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. We cannot justify ourselves. Justification simply comes in recognizing that Jesus truly lived that perfect life, fulfilling the law, died the death on the cross, paying our punishment, and the resurrection shows that all to be true. When you place your faith in Jesus, his righteousness is charged to your account. It's credited to you by faith. Just like Adam's sin was charged to the account of all humanity, by faith in Christ, his righteousness is charged to all the believing. And so justification is absolutely necessary. But had Christ not risen, that justification could not be given. Romans 5, 9 much more than having now been justified by his blood. So yes, Paul says justification is coming through the spilled blood of Christ. But again, that bears repeating. If Christ is not resurrected, it would mean that the death of Christ was not accepted by the Father for the removal of sin, which means if it was not accepted, Jesus is not the perfect sinless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And if Jesus isn't the perfect sinless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, 
then you and I have no righteousness that can be credited to us. Therefore, we cannot be justified. And so we are all still damned in our sins. So the resurrection shows that everything Jesus has said, everything Jesus has done is true. The resurrection is the vindication that the claims of Christ are not simply made up, that Christ truly is the risen perfect Lamb of God. This is why you and I can come across verses like 2 Corinthians 5.21, and we can declare them, believe them, memorize them, sing them with such hope. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You and I would have no hope to stand before God and be accepted in his sight had the Lord Jesus Christ not been resurrected from the dead. It is only because Christ has been resurrected from the dead that we can have assurance and confidence before God on that day where we stand before him, that we will be accepted as sons and daughters, that we will not be condemned as enemies. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. The Apostle Paul says, And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God upon faith. We have faith that Christ died, that Christ rose, and that because of that, our life is found in him, him who lives forever, him who is life, is the one who gives life to our mortal bodies. Which brings us to our final point this morning. The resurrection matters because the resurrection is central to our resurrection. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. But the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. For the Apostle Paul, the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of the resurrection of all who come after him by faith. This is why Jesus is called the first fruits. He's a sign of the harvest to come. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. We can have confidence that we too, though our body perish, will be resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit because Jesus Christ has been resurrected. He is the first fruits. I was thinking about this last night. I hadn't thought about it in a while. When I was 10 years old, my grandfather, who was a minister, who was my only exposure to church, died. After a heart surgery, I was holding his hand in the hospital while he flatlined. And I remember at 10 years old, consciously thinking, there is no God. If there is, I don't want any part of it. Why would he take my grandpa? 
And I was reading over my notes and thinking about the resurrection. And I couldn't help but smile and think how my grandfather in Spanish is probably going to say, you're such a fool for living so long in rebellion to God. But I'm going to see him again. He's going to be resurrected. I'm going to see my grandfather. I wonder what that conversation will be like. I don't know. His 10-year-old little grandson who was always getting in trouble, to his grandson who lived a life as a God-hating atheist, who then God sovereignly saves and becomes a Christian, who then becomes a minister, who preaches. I just, I can't wait for the resurrection to to see my grandpa and talk to him about it. Perhaps you have loved ones who died in the Lord. Can you imagine what that's going to be like, that reunion? And then we're all just going to probably charge, just try to get as close as we can to Christ. The marriage supper of the Lamb, where we'll sit at the table with the Lord once more, and again he will eat from the table, and we will see him face to face in resurrected bodies. We can have confidence in that because he rose from the dead. The tomb is empty. Good buddy of mine, just yesterday. They lost a child really young. He says, Easter renews my hope that I will see my child. Child died within the first few days of birth. Him and his wife long for the message of Easter. That death has been defeated and that those who die in the Lord will be resurrected. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 8. Just hear it again, this beautiful promise. Now, if we died with Christ, when you put your faith in Jesus, this is what baptism represents. Your old nature of iniquity, of sinfulness, dies with Christ. There's a sense in which The old you was crucified with Christ on the cross. That's Galatians 2.20, for I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So here, now if we die with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So there is a sense in which, by faith, we are living in life. We are living resurrection life now. We're going to change. Our bodies will give way. But our spirits are living that resurrected life now in portion. One of the most powerful chapters in the entire New Testament about the resurrection is 1 Corinthians 15. We looked at that last year. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. He goes on to say, and we can rightly say, that if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, we're all wasting our time. This is a waste of time. Reading your Bible is a waste of time. Praying is a waste of time. Trying to live holy and righteous life, it's all a waste. 
There's no virtue in living a Christian life if there isn't a risen Messiah, a risen Savior that we're following, that we're hoping in. Go be a humanist. But look at verses 20 through 22. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Believer, your faith is not in vain. This narrow path we walk, this putting to death our sin, this trusting that the wisdom of God is better than our wisdom, this putting to death even our some of our hopes and dreams because we want to pursue the path of God. None of it is in vain. Trying to have relationships in a God-honoring way, trying to honor your father and mother, trying to honor your husband and wife, trying to pursue vocations in a God-honoring way, stewarding your money, not storing up the treasures of the world, not being ashamed to say Jesus is Lord, holiness is true and good in a society that doesn't want it. Subduing desires, even if they're natural desires, I feel this way. This is why I feel expressing. No, all of that, none of that is in vain if, because Christ has been risen. He is worthy. Life on this earth is compared to an eternity. Think of like a child who could have a vacation at Disney, but instead they want to settle for just a cheap gumball machine toy for 50 cents. No, you can have this or this. I'm going to, because I'm such an, I want it now. I'm going to choose this 50 cent gumball machine instead of a, a vacation. That is what we do when we choose sin over Christ, when we don't understand the value, the power, the beauty, the goodness of living for the risen Messiah according to his word. Because what awaits us is a life that we cannot imagine. This life is hard. This life is a series of small deaths. It's like death by a thousand paper cuts often. That every single one of them is worth it because Christ is risen. The tomb is empty. Eternal life is offered to us. The God of all goodness stands ready to pour his blessing upon his children for all eternity. He's been risen and so we will be risen too. The more you think on the fact that Christ will raise you from the dead, the more you realize I'm going to choose to be dead to this world. I'd rather be dead to the world and alive in Christ than alive in the world, but dead to Christ. Put your faith in Christ. Put your faith in the resurrected Christ. Be justified because he's been risen. Receive eternal life. Be resurrected yourself because he has risen. 2 Corinthians 4.14 
knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and will present us with you. Do you realize there's a day, I don't know, maybe Christ returns while we're in church one day. And we all get presented to Christ together. Yes, yes, agreed. (laughs) Amen, man. Could you imagine that day? I would love nothing more than to be presented before Jesus with all of you. So let me close by saying this. Jesus has truly been raised. He's not dead. The tomb is empty. Jesus is ruling and reigning in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. There is no greater news. It makes every sacrifice and every act of submission in this life worth it. Obedience truly is the best way to say it. We love you and we thank you. So I want to close with a quote from one of my favorite quotes surrounding the resurrection. By a man that God has used to shape my longing for eternity. It's a quote by Dr. John Piper and says, quote, The best news of the Christian gospel is that the supremely glorious creator of the universe has acted in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection to remove every obstacle between us and himself so that we may find everlasting joy in seeing and savoring his infinite beauty, end quote. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And what does one say when we see the reality that you have risen your you have raised your son by the spirit of holiness and power and that all of us who have trusted in Christ are not simply forgiven but are living in light of eternity, are living in this resurrected life. The only proper response is thank you, we love you. We cannot say that enough. Father, have us lay hold of this glorious truth and sing of it here momentarily. Let us lay hold of this glorious truth and prize it in such a way that we will make the hard decisions in this life to show that we value the life that you've given us in Christ. And Father, I pray for any man or woman in this room this morning who at this moment does not have that resurrected life because they have chosen thus far to not repent of their sins and trust in you, Lord Jesus. I pray that you would overcome the doubts, the obstacles, the hurts that are in their heart that they have clung to and that are dragging them down to the depths of the sea instead of clinging to you, Christ, as Savior. May they see, Lord, that you, the resurrected Christ, can resurrect them, Lord. That they can be forgiven, that they can receive eternal life, and that you can resurrect, that you can give them new life no matter what they've done. That we are truly new creations in Christ. And that we would be able then, and that they would be able, Lord, to proclaim with great joy, unspeakable, the truth that we find in Galatians 2.20, and that all of us here in Christ will sing, can sing, that we have been crucified with Christ, that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in us, and that the life we live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us 
and gave his life for us. We pray these things in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.